oh, it does feel good to be up here without a mask. Wow, this is the first. Um, who are you? That is the question that we just heard in this spoken word of who are you? And it's a question that we all encounter in our lifetime, right? In our developmental stages, we, we actually end up learning more about who we are. What's my name? What's my last name? Where was I born? Where am I going to school? And we start learning all these things about ourselves. I can clearly recall when I, before entering kindergarten, my parents having a conversation with me about um, what to answer when people ask me where I'm from. And at that point, I didn't really understand the context of that. Um, you know, they said, you know, when they get to know you, they may say, oh, like, what's your name? And then they may ask, where are you from? And they said, when people ask you that, you can tell them, my dad's Mexican, my mom's Peruvian, but you're from Minnesota. And now as I grow and reflect on that line that I've said my whole life, um, it's very obvious to me why I needed to know that. Um, but also, it's very obvious I have very distinct features that I think make me look like of Hispanic ethnic background. Uh, my name in itself, this is my married name, but before it was Rivera, but also Alarcon kind of give that Hispanic flavor, right, of uh, context of who I am. And they're part of what we learn about ourselves. And there's different parts of our lives where we're coming into self-discovery. And part of the self-discovery um, that we encounter um, looks a little different for our younger generations. I recall very clearly creating my first social media profile. Um, was anyone else's first social media profile MySpace? Okay, yeah, okay. So, you know, this was a new thing. You know, I think if I were to create this profile when I was an adult, perhaps it would be different, but it was this growing moment of putting a brief snapshot of who I was on the internet. And I'd never before had to write a description of who I was. Do I put my little line of my dad's from Mexico, my mom's from, but I'm from here? Do I talk about what grade I'm in, my interests, my family, my, what has formed a lot of my identity of being a pastor's daughter? It's, it's a weird thing, and as social media continues to grow and expand, our younger generations are having to confront this moment of identifying ourselves in such a public platform online. It's a unique experience that we live in, and if you go to adservices.google.com and your personalization's on, I encourage you to check it out, because based on your browsing data and search history, Google can look and see and make some, with their algorithms, guess a little bit of who you are, your marital status, your income brackets, your interests. Mine was a little wrong. They thought I was single and not married, but you know, but they had so many other things right about me. Based off what I had Googled, they could probably tell that I liked musical theater and there was some religious things that they had inferred about me. My religious views, all based off of that. 
Today we'll be exploring the identity of John the Baptist. And as Pastor Jeff has alluded in all of the readings that we've done of John in the last few weeks, a lot of the gospel is people trying to figure out, is this Jesus? Is this the Messiah? But the person before all of that was John the Baptist. So I invite you to join me in opening up to Luke 1. And in Luke 1, um, we're going to start around verse 11. And what's happening here is this is before Jesus is born, before John the Baptist is born, the birth of John the Baptist is foretold. So in verse 11, I'm going to set the scene. So you have Zechariah, who's a priest, um, married to Elizabeth. They have no children, and he's burning incense. And then in uh, verse 11, it says, Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was griped with, with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid. Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make a people prepared for the Lord. So what do we know at this point? We know what John's name is going to be. John. We know that the Holy Spirit will be in him even before birth and that he's preparing hearts. So John is born and he is um, after, if you want to keep reading John on your own first, it's really interesting to see all the, all the things that happen right leading up to his birth. But then when he is born, he's named John. Zachariah prophesizes with the Holy Spirit and in verse 79, it says that John will shine on those living in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the path of peace, which is what everyone was waiting for, right? There was a Messiah that was going to come, and it was going to be fantastic. And I imagine maybe some people read this and said, yes, I can't wait because it's going to be peace, and we're going to get justice, and everything's going to be okay, but if you were here a few weeks ago, maybe it was more than that, when Pastor Jay did a sermon on peace, it's fascinating to see how this path of peace that has been paved from the beginning of time and even more right before the death of Christ were led to this path of peace and that John the Baptist is there. And the peace that is prophesized here isn't what we may have thought right in the beginning of being this peace. It was Jesus. And we'll continue exploring what John meant as he was preparing the way and part of his mission. But imagine, what if you were born and you knew exactly what your life purpose was? I googled like how to discover your life purpose, how do I know who I am, and there are billions of results online from religious websites, from psychological websites, from beauty magazines, even ancestry.org came up or .com where you can discover more about yourself, create your DNA profile. We're in this self-discovery mode from our human nature. 
But didn't John have an advantage? I mean, he knew exactly what his purpose was going to be. And he had a mission right from the get-go, filled with the Spirit in the beginning. Desire of Ages says the burden of his mission was upon him. And oh, I would, I've spent so much of my time wanting to crave to have a burden of a mission. I mean, imagine how much clarity um, we would have if we had this burden of a mission. And that's exactly what John the Baptist um, did and what we saw. I want to invite you to turn to John uh, 1.19. And here, this is the spoken word that we just heard. And thank you, Clark, for reading it with such a booming voice. Um, so um, I'm going to read through some of that dialogue again in verse 20. He says, um, or the scripture says that John did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah the prophet, I am the voice of one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you have not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not no. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He was the voice. Here he was identifying himself to everyone. And there he says that, like 27, verse 27, he is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He knew his status, although he was the voice of the wilderness was one that even if maybe others thought he was on this high pedestal, he was still the most unworthy person to tie, to untie those sandals. What's interesting here is that as we look at this identity and saying who you are, he could have easily said, well, my name's John, my mom's name is Elizabeth, my dad's name's Zechariah, but he doesn't even go there. Because what he was identifying was not who he was, but whose he was. He was the voice and prophesizing through God. And then right after that, we'll see in verses 29 to 34, John testifying about Jesus. And I think movies have made this seem very glamorous because I, as I was reading through this, I was imagining, you know, there's a crowd of people all surrounding John and then they say, well, tell us who the Messiah is. And then John saying, there he is. Look, the Lamb of God. And then Jesus coming forward and he's glowing and there's strings playing and maybe people move back and they're like, wow, that's him. And maybe for some people that was their reaction. But I mean, if we think about it, let's read the text and take away all of the maybe dramatization from movies that we may imagine us knowing, right? And imagine ourselves being skeptical. Someone comes and says, this is the Messiah. So verse 29, the next day John says, Jesus coming toward him and says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is the one I meant when I said, a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. 
I myself did not know him, but the reason I came baptizing with water was that he may be revealed to Israel. Then John gave this testimony. I saw the spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, the man on whom you see the spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and testified that this is God's chosen one. So as John the Baptist here is spending time identifying who Jesus is and the Messiah, he's also baptizing. And baptism nowadays has been, you know, the symbol of our repentance or acknowledgement of our identity. But he was saying here even further, there's this baptism, there's the spirit, there's more to this. Perhaps it's not just acknowledging I am a child of God or I want to believe, I want to follow, but there is more because there's this factor of the spirit. And that's exactly how John identified Jesus, by the spirit that he saw. He knew that he indeed was there. So John gets followers. People maybe are impressed. They start to believe they're repenting, and he gets a following. I don't even know. I wonder if they actually called him John the Baptist. I didn't look into that. Maybe, some, maybe Rebecca will tell me later. Did they actually call him John the Baptist, or is he just John? But he starts getting this attention. So what happens? How do people react? How do John the Baptist's disciples react? I invite you to turn to John 3, where we see this conversation. And in verse 26, uh, the disciples share and say, uh, the disciples of John say, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. Why point it out? Threatening? Did they have some sort of status or acknowledgement that they were the followers of John the Baptist? Verse 27, to this John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I'm not the Messiah and am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. The joy is mine and it is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. And for those that are familiar with this story, as he says, I must become less, Jesus starts having his disciples and he starts healing the sick. But the ironic thing here is that as, as John is saying this, still is saying, I am not the Messiah. He's the Messiah. He's the powerful. He's the Savior. John actually, there's no account that he actually got to witness all of this. And yet he didn't witness. He was following his path and mission of knowing that even though he at first had the attention, that now it was time's John, John's time to decrease. He says he must become greater. I must become less. I am jumping around all around the Bible, if you've been able to tell. Luke 7 <laughs> It's all, you know, you have to find like the right tone for the right message. Anyways, Luke 7. John is in prison. 
and he is probably alone. The Bible says that his disciples were allowed to like check in on him, but he's alone in prison. And he calls his disciples, and in verse 18 of chapter 7 of Luke, it says, he sent them to the Lord to ask, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? After all this time, everyone saying, you know, we need John the Baptist to identify who the Messiah is. John is in prison, and then he's asking, he wants to confirm that he's actually Jesus. And I remember reading that, and it just, like, not sitting well with me. Like, isn't the Spirit with you? Don't you know? Didn't you already proclaim that this was him? And then here you are asking to confirm. What expectations wasn't Jesus meeting? And what's it like when Jesus doesn't meet the expectations that we have, right? We perhaps think that, you know, as we follow Christ, things will certainly play out a certain way, or the love that we proclaim will make this earth look a lot different, but it doesn't look that way. And I imagine that that's what John was sitting with, just confirming, just tell me, is this, are you the one So the men came to Jesus in verse 20. They said, John the Baptist sent us to you to ask, are you the one who is to come or should we expect someone else? That same question. And where verse 21 says, at that very time Jesus cured many um, diseases, sicknesses, and evil spirits, uh, gave sight to many who were blind. So he replied to the messengers, go back and report John what you have seen and heard the blind receive light the lame walk those who have leprosy are cleansed the deaf hear the dead are raised and the good news is proclaimed to the poor talking prophecy here because that's how John would be able to that's how John would be able to identify that this indeed was the Messiah still not what people thought Right? When they thought that Jesus was going to come in all his glory, you know, maybe an organizational strategy, if this was, you know, maybe a business or an organization, they would say, okay, so we need to change our leadership structure. We need to make sure there's influence. Let's get all the top leaders. Let's have a strategic plan to ensure that people believe that Jesus is the Messiah. We'll start with the priests. Then we'll start with the leaders in in our religious communities. And then we'll build it from there. But Jesus was going to the people, to those that were sick, making changes, making miracles, not the expectation people had. After they leave, Jesus spends some time describing John the Baptist and identifies that John indeed is that voice in the wilderness verse 27, this is the one about whom it is written, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you, among those born of women, there is no one greater than John. And imagine before, I think that his followers would have loved to hear that. Yes, no one's greater than John. That's why we're following him. And that's why it maybe upsets us that you're getting more attention than John, because John was called to be this voice. But Jesus doesn't say that in front of him of them, and says it to the people that are there. But then this is where it gets interesting, and this is where the whole identity of John really gets deeper, because after that he says, yet the one who is least in the kingdom of God 
is greater than he. So Jesus is saying, you know, this is the greatest person born of any woman. And yet, if you're in the kingdom of God like that, even if you're the least, you're greater than he is. Where does that speak to our identity on this earth? That perhaps our true worth, perhaps the way God views us, it's for everyone. It's for everyone. I'm going to take you on our last flip of the Bible here. If you've been following along, go to Matthew 16, where um, Peter's having a conversation with the Messiah. And we've continued to see passages, and I'm sure if Pastor Jeff stays in John, you'll continue to see passages of Jesus having to describe who he is. In Matthew 16, verse 17, verse, no, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, it says, when Jesus came to the region, region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say the Son of Man is? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and so others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Blessed are you. Jesus replied, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. The people that Peter describes here, you know, some say you're John, some say you're Elijah. He was established. He was like the greatest person born. Elijah, who was already used when he was being described to Zechariah, that he would be like a voice. And all of these voices had a purpose and a mission. Perhaps Elijah was also burdened with his mission, which is why his ministry looks the way that it did. But what Jesus is blessing Peter on in verse 17, it's not the fact that you knew, your flesh and blood knew who Jesus was. It's the fact that the Spirit revealed it to you. So what is knowledge of God? What, how, how much does that serve us? understanding all of the scriptures in here when there's this other deeper layer component that lies about not who you are, but whose you are. Burdened with mission is just the theme that I see that I've been reading through and have felt so convicted to talk about because it shows that as we're burdened with mission, our life can be different. It looks different. And this perhaps superficial identifying of maybe I am this or, you know, I believe in Jesus. Not sure how that really impacts my life, but it's just part of my belief system and that's it. But it's so much more. And I've been able to see that in people in this church, people who are just so burdened with mission. Um, I think if you were to think of someone, of course, Pastor Jafet comes up, you know, he was always just with this vision, always with this mission, always showing up here so early because it was this restlessness. Pastor Jessica coming here really early, making sure Camp Santa was showing the love of Christ. 
Pastor Jay, some of you all got to witness him in his restlessness, making sure, because they're following that mission. And Pastor Jeff, well, we know how difficult it's been. And if you don't know, it's just been we had this parsonage, and then the parsonage, like, fell apart. Literally, right, Mark? <laughs> Literally fell apart, and we had this plan, and we always kept it to have it for someone to come. And it's been such a difficult journey. But what has kept Jeff encouraged is that he knows he has a burden of a mission to be at Boulder. We know that he was called to be here. And I know he's watching now. Hi, Jeff. But there's this burden that lives within us when we're following the, the baptism of true repentance and not just of this, I acknowledge you, but I'm going to let you live within my life and my life now, as the youth department would say, being fully alive, there's this fullness of life that comes through. And here's the thing, it's for all of us. All of us can be burdened with this mission. I brought up pastors on purpose because it's not about the title, right? I mean, what would Boulder look like if we were all just burdened with this mission, right? Every single one of us, how would we be known in this community? Where would God lead us as a people? And if we're walking with each other in our faith journeys, and someone doesn't feel that burden of that mission or wants to explore more, then we'd walk with them. We'd study together and say, maybe, you know what? I'm not really there yet either. So why don't we explore more of the word together? What fruits are we bearing? And are we preparing the path for God's return? I mean, that's what John was doing, right? He knew he was preparing this path. The Messiah was coming. People didn't know exactly, well, they thought they knew how it would look. But we're on this similar path with the second coming. So how does this look like for you individually and as a church? And I would say what it looks like, and it begins here, right? Because it's all about our personal connection and repentance with Christ. And that's how it begins. You can try to do it backwards and try to do all the actions beforehand, but there's this deeper, when the spirit is able to dwell within you, then that's when you're producing fruit. And that's when you're able to really fully live love.